Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And my guest today is CNBC senior media and tech reporter and former Fortune writer, Julia Borston. She's here to talk about her upcoming book, Why Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. Welcome to the show, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, it turns out that my daughter's name is Julia, too. So it's another another Julia. And uh, I read when I was prepping for the interview that when you were 13, your mother told you that by the time you grew up, women could be just as powerful as men, captains of industry, running the biggest companies. But we see that the gender gaps have not closed as much as you and your mom had hoped. And so my Julia is actually 13 right now. <laughs> and uh, are we going to be talking about a different story in a couple decades with her? I want you to be able to tell the same thing to her that my mom told me, but this time I want you to be right. Yeah. My mom told me that the gender gaps would close by the time I grew up, but I unfortunately saw the harsh reality that uh, women are vastly underrepresented in so many powerful positions, particularly in business. And I hope that you can tell your Julia that 10, 15, 20 years from now, gender gaps will have closed a lot more quickly than the pace of change in the past 20 years. Well, I mean, that's really what the book is all about is, you know, how and why women are building such strong companies and and what's happening there. You know, the book focuses a lot on startups. I wanted to start there about how you kind of chose that area to start to tell this story? So I've been a reporter at CNBC for 16 years now. I was at, at Fortune Magazine before that. And I've interviewed so many different amazing CEOs, including Mark Benioff, um, <laughs> who is such an inspiration. And by the way, he plays into a lot of the, the lessons in this book, because I think he leads with a lot of the characteristics I write about. But one thing that struck me is there are certain fields where women face the biggest challenges and have the least representation. And just to put this in context... Um, women represent about 8% of the CEOs of the Fortune 500. So we're talking about the 500 most powerful companies. Women are 8%. Yeah. But there is a statistic that to me is the most shocking. And that is that last year, women got female founded companies drew 2% of all venture capital dollars. Mm -hmm. Companies with co and in general, just looking back over the past 10 years to make it clear, this is not just a one year aberration. On average, over the past 10 years, women have drawn 3% of venture capital dollars. Mm -hmm. So that statistic to me was so shocking. And the fact that it wasn't changing over a decade said to me that this is an area that is really hard for women. Mm -hmm. And what struck me is the women who've been able to succeed despite those odds are by definition exceptional. They, have, they are exceptions to the rule. And I figured the, those women must have amazing lessons that we can all benefit from. Yeah, and you write that because of the risks in investing and startup ideas, and those risks are so great that VCs rely heavily on affinity and social connections to make their decisions. And I think that goes beyond that world. Maybe that's it's more heightened there. But is that something that you see as a big thing to overcome in terms of how these decisions are made? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that's important is I'm not blaming anyone for the fact that there are gender gaps. Yeah. I'm not pointing fingers and saying this is all the fault of a small group of people. And in fact, I think a lot of the issues are very much structural and not malicious. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the, the source of gender 
um, gaps or malice. I think it's the you know simple fact of pattern matching. And when stakes are really high and when investors want to minimize their risk, they want two things. Number one, an, a founder who reminds them of other founders who have succeeded in the past. They're looking for a pattern. They want to invest in a successful pattern. Mm-hmm. That's natural, right? That's not malice. But if you're looking for someone who looks like Mark Zuckerberg, or even, you know, looks like Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, you're going for a type that excludes a lot of other people. You know, so Julia, part of what's in the book is about how women succeed because of the unique skills that they have. Can you tell me about some of those skills that that you found in the process of writing the book? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, there's this image of, of, uh, of leadership that it's supposed to be just one thing. And I found that there were a variety of different ways I was seeing women lead with great success. And a lot of that was just about leaning into their natural strengths and finding ways to use things, whether it's, you know, for instance, a a tendency to be an introvert or um, feeling a great sense of gratitude or leaning into vulnerability to use these things that don't seem like they're about strengths as these incredibly powerful tools for leadership. Um, So I, I mentioned earlier this idea of communal leadership, the power of going down to the people on the ground and bringing in ideas from across an organization. That's something women are more likely to to do. It's really an alternative to the authoritative top-down leadership that we um, talk about sort of as a traditional leadership style. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of data about how leaning with vulnerability is incredibly valuable. This idea of having humility when um, making decisions. And there's a lot of data about how in times of crisis in particular, Female leaders are better at being highly adaptable. You know, they talk about the adaptability quotient, making swift decisions based on data and not getting stuck uh, stuck with plans that are already in place. Because often it's time to ditch a plan that's been in the works for a long time. So what I think is so essential here is that these aren't characteristics that only women use, but that women may be more traditionally likely to use these approaches. But in fact, that when men use these approaches, they can be incredibly um, powerful approaches too. But these, the ways I'm talking about leading, whether it's gratitude or vulnerability, these are not things that are, you know, seen as powerful traits. But I guess my perspective is having seen them in action among all these women is actually showing vulnerability, being humble. That's how you succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, and you write about the difference between kind of fixed mindset and growth mindset. And I think that this relates to what we were talking to and how women may approach situations or problems differently and how those mindsets, whether fixed or growth, play out between genders and and how that changes over time. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, look, I love talking about a growth mindset. I, I have two kids and I talk about it all the time with them, but there's so much data about how, um, how a growth mindset is incredibly valuable, um, not just for kids, but professionally. And I think that a balance of self-confidence and humility is what enables a growth mindset. I mean, it makes sense. If you're humble, then you know you can learn. And if you have a growth mind, you know, and if you're if you're self-confident, you know you can push yourself to improve. I also think it's important to look at how a growth mindset can be used across a company, both in the way a company operates, but also in hiring. And there's some good data in the book about the importance of using a growth mindset for hiring and not hiring just based on resumes, which uh, a resume is more of a reflection of what opportunities you had and what kind of a background you grew up in. 
and um, hiring based on ability instead. And this idea of in one of the VCs I interviewed talked about looking at someone's distance traveled and she doesn't want to hire someone or invest in a company based on whether they went to Harvard or Stanford, but based on how far they've come. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's amazing data about how if you have a growth mindset, you have more brain activity after you've made a mistake. You know, if you have a growth mindset, you're more likely to bring in ideas from across an organization because you're not only stuck on your um, your fixed ideas that you've already had. So, um, so I just think growth mindset is so essential to really imbue across an organization. And so break down the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. What are the differences? So a fixed mindset is the idea that, you know, you are who you are, you're good at what you're good at, and that's kind of about it. But a growth mindset is the idea that you can change and evolve over time and that you're through effort and experience, you can change what it is that you're capable of. So there's an amazing study I include in the book and and actually ties into parenting. Um, For many years, researchers found that girls were more likely to have a fixed mindset and boys had a growth mindset. And that was because the teachers were struggling so hard to get the kids to sit down, the boys to sit down, that they'd say, you're so smart, you can do anything as as long as you put your mind to to it and sit down and get to work, (laughs) you'll do great in class. Where the girls, they'd say, you're you're good, you, you know, you're gonna do this because you're good at this. You're good at math, but they didn't have the idea, well, you can learn anything if you try Mm -hmm. your hardest. But ultimately, growth mindset is this idea that if you try your hardest, you can do anything you set your mind to. So there's a study, and this, you know, there's a study, and this ties into sort of the evolution of of parenting over time, about how, um, about whether or not this, what they call the bright girl effect, persisted into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And the, the, original professor who did the research on this bright girl effect of telling girls that their abilities were fixed and boys that they could do anything went back after time and found that there was not a a bright woman effect. And in fact, that women old, the older women get the more they tend to have growth mindsets. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's this idea that as you get older, the idea that you could keep on learning and changing and evolving is incredibly powerful. And so it was reassuring to see that women have kind of what they call an improving outlook as opposed to a proving outlook. So I love the idea that as women get older, they more and more embrace this idea that they can evolve and change. It's so interesting. And why do you think it is that women sort of continue with that growth mindset or it it grows as they get older? Well, you know, there's a fascinating study about confidence, men and women and confidence. And it's found that when men and women graduate college, men have much higher confidence than women do women have much lower confidence. And then as they get older, and I wish I could show you this on a sort of a graph, but men's confidence declines, like going down on a chart, and women's confidence increases with age. Mm -hmm. And then around age 40, the confidence lines intersect. It's like an X on the chart, right? So what's so interesting about this is that women's confidence increases with experience and men's confidence decreases as they see what their, you know, actual abilities are in the world. So I think what that shows is that women start off perhaps, you know, unconfident because they have no experience in in the working world. And maybe men start off too confident. But as time goes on, women see that they have so much to offer and they gain confidence. And it seems to me like, you know, I, I make a joke in the book about how it's not, you know, it's not youth that's wasted on the young. It's confidence because men are more confident than they should be. And they realize that 
as they get older. So I think just correlating confidence with experience makes sense. It makes sense. And as you gain that confidence with your experience, you think, hey, if I do set my mind to do anything, I can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a great message for women who are younger in their career to not be overconfident, but to know that that can come in time. Because it seems like if you don't have that confidence early, you might miss some of those opportunities and not push as hard and then not have the opportunity as you get older to take advantage of that confidence. Is that something that you see? Look, confidence and humility, these things are complicated and also nuanced. Um, there's a great, speaking of confidence though, there's this amazing research about the value of female board members. And they found that during the financial crisis, companies with women in the boardroom made better investment acquisition decisions and also had less aggressive risk-taking. And they found that female board members helped temper the overconfidence of male CEOs and push them to be more rational. So you want to be confident enough to execute, but not so confident that you're making risky, dumb decisions. Um, and all of this you know, research on confidence and humility and correlating confidence with experience, all of this, it ties into this idea that one social scientist wrote about that I quote in the book. And that's the idea that confidence can and should be on a dial. And what I mean by that is, is that if we can turn up and down our confidence, then we will be more successful. Um, and this, this uh, professor writes about the value of turning down your confidence when you're trying to make a decision, because you should be gathering perspectives and opinions from across your organization, from people outside your organization. And if, you, if you're overly confident when you're doing that, you're not gonna be successful. You need to be able to turn down your confidence to effectively do that. Then once you've gathered all that data, thrown your own assumptions out the window, then that's when you should turn up your confidence to execute and to communicate about the decision you've made. So that's why I think all this research about confidence is so interesting. When you think about other pursuits, so for example, building a bridge and it's an engineering project or you're doing a, a science, there are bold decisions that go out, but through the process, you're really using data. You're looking at that, you know, hopefully the people that are working on that are using a more tempered approach to, to have that confidence. And that's why there's so much research in this book about the value of relying on data over ego. Yeah. And there's some research that women are more likely, especially in heightened times of crisis, when things are stressful, women are more likely to make decisions based on, on data. And it all comes down to data, right? Data indicates that more diverse teams perform better. That's why I'm ultimately optimistic that the business world will slowly march towards diversity because it's simply the more effective thing to do financially. Yeah. And, you know, we've been having this conversation uh, for so long. Uh, part of the question for me is, you know, how can we accelerate this? Well, you know what? The, the pace of change is so slow. The data is here. It's clear. It's, you know, this is, it's a winning formula. What's the holdup? Well, look, there's so many different pieces to this. There's hiring, there's retention, there's promotion. I actually think that Salesforce has really been a leader at this in terms of the corporate world, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that you're not just paying people equitably, but also promoting them equitably. And I remember interviewing uh, Mark Benioff years ago about his work to figure out why there wasn't necessarily a pay gap, but what, that there was a promotion gap and yeah. how to equalize that. Mm -hmm. So I think the big companies have to put their money where their mouth is like Salesforce has been doing. Um, and then I also think it's just recruiting and hiring at every level of the funnel. Um, I actually interviewed um, Benioff um, on stage at the Grace Hopper Forum, which is a conference mm -hmm. for young women in technology. These are you know women who are graduating college. 
And I think companies need to not only make an effort to recruit, but also understand how to pull out the bias and the, and the pattern matching from their own hiring processes. And I actually, in the book, write about some of the companies that are helping do just that. These are tech tools that are helping to move companies away from reliance on the resume. The resume is an outdated way of hiring people because it actually gives you no indication of whether or not someone's going to be good at a job, mm -hmm. um, just what experiences they've had and what um, perhaps privilege they've had in terms of enabling those experiences. So I think the technology, the better the technology gets, the more accurate data gets, the better we'll be able to use all of that information to strip out stereotype and bias um, and really move towards a data-driven future where people are hired based on their potential, back to the growth mindset, you know, yeah. use a growth mindset in hiring. And, um, and ultimately, whether it's boards or um, the C-suite or the engineering um, you know, the engineering employees at a company, diversity is so valuable because you're going to better speak to customers who are, they don't look like the white men who for so long dominated, um, dominated the C-suite of every company. Mm -hmm. You write about this idea called the conformity bar. Can you describe what that is and how it impacts hiring, decision-making, et cetera? Yes. Yeah, so, so there are all sorts of different double standards here. So there's the confirmatory standard. So there's this idea of double standards that men and women have and people who are minority groups. If you're not used to seeing someone in a certain role, um, they might surprise you with what I call the, what, what they call the minimum standard. This is what I call the pleasant surprise. So the, wow, she's not incompetent threshold. So because women are not represented in leadership or people of color are not representative leadership, they might meet a minimum standard more easily than, say, someone who fits a traditional stereotype. But then there's this other standard at the other side of the bell curve, and that's called the confirmatory standard. That is the standard that someone must reach to convince others that he or she can possess a certain trait. So to convince, for a woman to convince um, a board that she is able to hold a CEO role, she has to meet this confirmatory standard. And it's right. much higher for women than it is for men. So women have to consistently defy the stereotype that they're less competent in business in order to reach that confirmatory standard. Uh -huh. um, but for men, um, because they fit the stereotype, it's not as hard. This is really what double standards are about. Right. And you write a little bit about some of the opportunities that women get in CEO roles where it's kind of the last resort or the, you know, the company is not doing well. And so, you know, that you have to enter these really challenging situations. Is, you think that's changing or is that still the case? I think. Yeah. So what you're referring to is this idea of a glass cliff. You know, we talk about the ceiling, but I think that the glass cliff image is so powerful because mm -hmm. a glass cliff is the idea that women are more likely to be given a big role, a ton of responsibility, say running a company, when their chance of failure is high. So a company is struggling, we're in the middle of a crisis, the board is, says, okay, let's give the woman who's number two or three on the totem pole, let's give her the job. There are a lot of reasons that might be. Maybe they think, what's the worst that can happen? Or we got to try something new because what we've been doing so far hasn't been doing, hasn't been working. But what's actually found is that in those situations, women do very well. So in those glass cliffs scenarios, when if, especially like in a financial downturn, those companies that appointed a woman and they thought things couldn't get worse, well, they actually got much better because those companies experienced a market increase in share price. So it shows that in those crazy situations, when women get a really tough job and maybe 
the the board thinks this is not a savable situation. So who cares if we give it to the woman? Mm -hmm. In fact, those women do incredibly well. So what that says to me is if women do well in those horrible, most stressful glass cliff scenarios, um, and in fact, there's a lot of data showing that employees would rather have a woman lead in a time of crisis for many of the reasons we just discussed that what happened, maybe women should get more opportunities when things aren't a total disaster. Yeah, absolutely. So my final question is after doing all this research, so many interviews, putting this book together, what's the key takeaway about why women should lead, what, what's important and how we can have more women in leadership positions? Well, I think it's not just why women should lead, but I think why all leaders, male and female, should try to lead more like women. I think my main takeaway is that there's no one way to be a good leader, to be a good innovator. And we need to break the stereotypes that there's just one or two ways to look and act like a leader. There's just, it's, that's doesn't, it's not accurate. It's not true. And I think the more we embrace not only diversity and leadership, but just different ways of doing things and open the door to finding these things that are our own personal superpowers. You know, for me, it's asking questions for someone else. Being an introvert might be a superpower. Um, acting vulnerable might be a superpower. You know, leading with gratitude might be a massive superpower. These things that don't seem like powers are actually powers if we can figure out how to deploy them. So I think we should have a new language of, around leadership a new language about what seems like a business strength or a powerful attribute in business. And that will be a really equalizing force that will bring out the best in all of us. Well, that's great. I really enjoyed the book and I agree. There's so many takeaways there. there. It's not just for women or for men, it's for everybody to think about, you know, these skills that drive great leadership. So thank you for writing it and uh, sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. It's such a treat to get to talk to you about it. Well, that was Julia Borstein, CNBC senior media and tech reporter and author of Why Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. Next week, we'll hear from the folks at Salesforce Research discussing ProGen. It's a new AI algorithm that helps scientists quickly develop new proteins, and we'll learn about their potential impact on future medical treatments. Well, you don't hear that from Salesforce every day, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a beat. And did you know that Blazing Trails is on YouTube? Yep, you can see me there. Just head over to the Salesforce YouTube channel and you'll find us there. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce Studios, produced by Rachel Levin and edited by Cynthia Chavez. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for being with us and we'll see you next time.